The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. I am your co-host, Michael Schwartz. I am sitting right outside of Staples Center, the scene of the crime last night, where for the first time in 28 years, the Phoenix Suns advanced to the NBA Finals. And I've got with me, hey, Zach Lowe. Welcome aboard, Zach. Mike Schwartz, I give you the intro because you are the most diehard Phoenix Suns fan I know. This is your day. The Phoenix Suns are in the NBA Finals. They just clinched at the Staples Center. Chris Paul played basically a perfect basketball game, a career yeah. high in the playoffs, 41 points. Uh, what What did you do after the game? What is? Did you sleep? What is life like for you? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Uh, I had an early call for jump today, so I didn't get a terribly a large amount of sleep. But you know what? I think you got to wait to celebrate. There's still four more wins to get, Zach. They've been here before, twice before. They just have never won the final step, won the championship. So um, I'm jubilant. It's just been such an incredibly fun season. I think these are the best kind of seasons where you think you think they're going to be good, kind of like 0405 with the Suns. You have a hunch that they're going to be a lot better than most other people think. But never did you think you would be, they'd be this good. What is your exact title at ESPN? I'm a senior researcher. Senior researcher. So every time I go to Los Angeles for the jump, or when I used to, I didn't see you last time, I don't think, because, uh, yeah. you know, the pandemic has screwed everything up. You're always, we're always talking sons, and mm-hmm. they always have a losing record, yeah. and you're always so... Tell me what you think about Aiton. Is he going to be this good? You're always so optimistic, and I felt... Almost pity for you during the de- during the down years. So I am thrilled for you and your Suns fan brethren. What did you do? Anything? Did you go out for a beer after the game? Did you call your family? Did was oh, there yeah. a phone yeah. call that you wanted to make? Yeah, I celebrated with my dad because we've been longtime uh, Suns fans. Um, I know he cracked open a beer that he'd been waiting for for this day. I'm not exactly chugging with the fellas like a lot of our Suns fan brethren have done, but. Um, I, honestly, I just had a smile on my face the whole night, just especially through that whole fourth quarter where you really knew it was coming. I think for me, it was after that four point play with Chris Paul, where it's like, oh, my God, this is really happening right now. This is happening tonight. The Suns are going to go to the finals. And honestly, when you look at the injuries on the other side of the bracket, the Suns are going to be favorites in the finals, which is just a incredible set of circumstances Uh even from the beginning of the playoffs when everyone thought the Lakers were going to beat them in round one in a, a 7-2 upset. I did. Yeah. I you were the only and, one. I think it was like 15 to 17 of our – maybe 16 to 17 of our ESPN experts had that. I mean, I'm I would the Lakers have won that series if Anthony Davis hadn't gotten hurt? I have no idea. Maybe. But Chris Paul also got hurt. And exactly. you can already see you 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 were already tweeting about it last night in defense of you can already see the diminishment the diminishment the diminishing of the Suns' path to the finals with yeah. Jamal Murray's hurt, Will Barton was hurt, uh, Anthony Davis was hurt. Now they get to Clippers and Kawhi's hurt, but Chris Paul did was hurt and then didn't look like himself when he came back. Cam Johnson, who was I mean I was talking to Clippers people between games five and six, they're like absolutely in love with Cam Johnson as a player. He, they thought mm-hmm. he's been tremendous the whole series. He misses last night's game. And look, the injuries are way worse than they've been in most playoffs in terms of the caliber of players and the number of them. But you can only play the teams in front of you. And look, the Suns w- just rolled 
through the Lakers once Anthony Davis got hurt. They didn't squeak by the Nuggets. They swept their ass right out of the playoffs. Suns in four. Suns, Suns in four. four. It's like if if you if you and the Clippers series got tough, but you know they won four two, and yeah, they could have lost a couple of the close games, but you know what? Coulda woulda shoulda. They won them. The value oop worked. So they've got four playoff losses, and once those injuries hit in the Lakers, and then the Nuggets were not whole, they just obliterated those teams. Like it wasn't it wasn't like they eked by, and you thought, well, if they, if this guy was healthy, clearly that's a win. They just rolled. Yeah, and I I just absolutely hate this asterisk talk. I want to put a complete end to it. And if there's any team, any fan base that you're going to try to throw it at, it can't be the Suns. I mean, you go back 05, Joe Johnson breaks his face. 06, Amari's out for all but three games. Then Raja Bell hurts his, I believe, calf in the West Finals. Uh, 07, of course, we all know Amari, Boris Diaw leaving the bench. I still feel like the Suns were the best team in 06, 07 and should have won that championship. So, uh if, if you're going to talk to any fan base, definitely not the Suns about this. Uh, banners fly forever, and I just feel like you can nitpick every season. Would the Warriors have won in 2019 if Kevin Durant was completely healthy? Probably, but we never know, and he wasn't. So uh, I think you can't you can't go back and do that. It, it diminishes the title, and honestly, in 20 years, if, if the Suns do win the championship, four more hard games. I certainly don't want to put anything ahead, but if they win this championship – I'm going to celebrate it like nobody was injured. It doesn't It doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Um, we're going to talk about all the heartbreaks for a little bit. You and I did a podcast when they went 8-0 in the bubble last year yep. where we went through uh, their, their – I mean, you couldn't even replicate how crazy their post-Steve Nash path of team building is. All the zigs, yeah. all the zags, all the trades that went bad, all the picks that went right. All the, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's start at the beginning. How old were you in 1993? I was seven years old. Young, you impressionable, uh, Scottsdale do, kid. Do you remember those finals and that oh, team? Oh, absolutely. I remember it clearly. That was my first uh, sports heartbreak. I wasn't really a sports fan until, I'm sure you remember, the Westfall Guarantee Series in the first round. Suns were the one seed. They fell down 2-0 back in the best of five era. Uh, Paul Westfall said they're going to go ahead, win two in LA, and come back on Sunday and win game five and everyone's going to say what a great series it was. Uh, the whole city shut down for that game five. So I remember vividly watching that, that overtime and I was hooked from there. Barkley had the big jumper in the semis over David Robinson to win that series. Tough game seven against the Sonics in the West finals. And then of course, Michael Jordan had one of his vintage performances in the 93 finals capped by John Paxson, uh, stake right through my heart with the game-winning three. And I still feel KJ may have been fouled on the last second play on the other end. So, yeah, I as you can see, I, I remember 93 quite well. So, I mean, I was I, – I'm 10 years older than you, I guess. I was 15, 16 in 1993. So I remember watching the games live. Yeah. And, you know, I, God knows how many basketball games I watch. You forget the details. So during the last dance, you know, I sort of turned this podcast into 90s nostalgia tour. And yeah. I had Barkley, I had Barkley on, and I had Ainge on, and so I rewatched some of the '93 finals and some of the Blazers finals when the Blazers finals when Ainge was on the Blazers. You know, we all remember the Paxson shot, right? We all remember that, and I didn't remember like the Suns are up four yeah. with a minute left in that game. Yeah. Staring at a game seven in Phoenix after winning game five in Chicago, like if for some reason I didn't remember how close they were sitting on the precipice in total control of that game, 
yep. before the sequence of events that leads to that 5-0 run that wins it. Can you like, have you rewatched that? Like, could, could, I've rewatched it like five times since then the last two minutes. Can you recite all of it? I can't recite all of that. I mean, I've seen the final tax and play and then the sequence with the Horace Grant block and the other foul on the other end uh, several times. I just remember uh, Michael Jordan scoring pretty much every basket in that fourth quarter up until the final shot where it was not, not pretty the, much, not pretty much everyone, everyone, every, every basket. Yeah. Every basket where it was one of those situations where you see possibly the greatest player of all time, probably the greatest player of all time in at the peak of his powers where you just can't stop him whatsoever. And yet the Suns were still right there. Like you said, a four point lead late really should have closed it out. And you're looking at a game seven at home. Granted the Suns weren't terribly good at home in that series, but you, you'd have to love your chances. In the last two minutes of that game, Barkley missed a little jump hook to put him up six. Then they got to stop. Marley missed a three that almost yeah. oh, hit the back right. of the rim, went straight up, and rattled in and out. And then they got the offensive rebound, and Frank Johnson misses. Just you couldn't give him a more wide-open oh, yeah. 18-footer. Yep. You know, it's coming. I have it's all coming back now. All the bad memories. I I blocked that out for 28 years, Zach. Yeah, that's. I guess that's just a case of the player the Bulls wanted taking a mid-range shot took the shot. You know, so credit to them for shutting down the Suns' uh, more established options. And and fourth quarter, Frank just couldn't get it done in that situation. And then the thing about the Paxson three is it. It happens so fast. Yeah. It's it's almost jarring. Like everybody, even on the commentary, they're like, oh, well, we all know the ball's the ball's going to Michael. And Michael dribbles the ball up, and you're just waiting for a Michael moment. And he passes it to Pippen around half court. And in your head, you know, like Pippen's just there to be the trigger man. There's no way this shot is for Scottie Pippen. Right. Apologies to Scottie Pippen, who's on quite a media tour right now. Yes, um, he is. And you know it's going back to Michael. And then in a split second, Barkley makes this decision, I think I can get a steal, and lunges at Pippen to try and steal the ball, doesn't get it, and from there, it's just bang, 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 Paxson hits a three, and like, I just can't even imagine, you're only seven, you're not there or whatever, I can't imagine being in the arena, that is, oh my god. we see, we see the shot now, we see it in slow motion, when you watch it live, you're like, what the f*** just happened, like the game, they're, they're up one, Michael didn't even do anything, like what happened? Yeah. Yeah, no, total shock, total shock and disbelief. And uh, that was back in the days when I thought your team goes to the finals every year. And oh, well, they, they and they did have a really good court. They had as good a chance as anyone of making the finals the next two years. Uh, Danny Manning knee injury could throw that onto the pile for the uh, Suns fans misery. And uh, they played two really tough series against the eventual champion Houston Rockets team. But that was one. OK, well got it next year especially michael jordan retires okay this is the sun's year and now it's been 28 years of doing that 28 years you're back in the finals and yeah after Giannis's injury i think no matter who makes it in the suns are going to be favored because the suns assuming cam johnson comes back yeah. are, are pretty much whole you mentioned right. the um the, the seven seconds or less teams yeah. um 2005 in the second in the conference finals rather I'm sorry Joe Johnson misses games in both the second and the round of the conference finals with an eye yeah. injury. 2006 Amari's out the whole playoffs and they scrapped they scrapped pretty hard all the way to the conference finals that year again. 
I think, right? Don't they make the conference yeah, finals? Yeah, they did. That was uh, just like this year. They beat the Lakers and Clippers. Three team. It's happened three times in NBA history where a team beat the Lakers and Clippers. And one was this year. One was the 06 Suns. And then 2007. Oh, boy. I mean, this is – it's interesting. Chris Paul being on the Suns and both of them simultaneously breaking through is kind of fitting because when you start yeah. listing all these names, you're like, life in the West for the last 20 years – it's like making the finals is is an accomplishment. And you think about how great those Suns teams were. 2007, they're an amazing team. Incredible team. And they run into the peak San Antonio Spurs and they lose in the in the Robert Ory hip check game, which, I mean, I don't know. You've talked about that game before, but that's just such an all-time letdown. As, even as a neutral fan, that was such a letdown. And it felt like that was the breakthrough. They won the hip check game, of course. So that, that was in San Antonio. Uh, Suns tied the series up two to two. Suns at home court advantage. So at that point, right before the hip check, you're feeling great. Wow, they finally burst through San Antonio, this team that's been so dominant for so long that the Suns could never beat. And now they just need to win two out of three with two of them being at home and you're there. And then it's just so deflating. Uh, oh my God, not only you lose Amari Stoudemire, but you lose Boris Diaw too. I mean, at least if you had Boris as that high post initiator, you feel like you still had a decent chance of winning game five. But to lose both of them was just a crushing, crushing blow in what I absolutely feel was the 2007 NBA Finals, even if it was the West Semis. It was the NBA. I mean, there's no question. I mean, LeBron's yeah. team, LeBron wasn't ready for I mean, LeBron wasn't ready, whatever. The Cavs were not ready no. for that level of competition. At that time, and that, again, that's life in the West. Like Chris Paul's never made the finals until now, and didn't and didn't make the conference finals until 2018. Yeah. You played the entire. He's played his entire career in the Western Conference. He's had the Spurs. He's had the Mavs. He's had all these teams. He's had he's had the Warriors toward the yeah. end. It's 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 not easy to get to get over the hump in the in the West. So to 2007, then by my math, what are you 20 20 24 uh, by that time, something like that. Yeah, I'm uh, uh 21. 21. What do you remember? Where are you watching those games? What's that like for you? I, I was in college back then at the University of Arizona. I mean, I remember watching especially that Suns-Lakers series because U of A seemed to be split with Suns and Lakers fans. And just the the bragging rights for winning that series was just unbelievable. The um, the 3-1 comeback series in, in 06 when uh, you had Tim Thomas hit the huge shot to, to tie it and uh, the game six where I think Kobe went for 50 but the Suns were still able to somehow pull it out in overtime. And that was really the year. Like, 05, it felt like the Suns weren't quite ready. Um, 05 almost was like this year in that um, it was a huge turnaround from the year before, one of the biggest turnarounds in NBA history from one season to the next, uh, 29 wins to 62 wins. And, it, you know, usually, not apparently not with these Suns, you need to go through your lumps, especially in the West, where you lose a couple tough series. So it kind of felt like the 05 team was taking your lumps. 06, you don't have Amari Stoudemire. You kind of felt like you're playing with house money. But 07, I mean, you've got everything. You've got all your pieces together. You're reasonably healthy. You just had this huge win against the Spurs. It, it felt to me like 07 was the year. I think that was the best Suns team of the Nash years, and I thought that was their best chance. So that that was definitely the most devastating one of, of the Nash run to me. And then it kind of goes sideways a little bit after yeah. that. You have the Shaq experiment and, and just the, the 08 and 09 teams. Um, 
just aren't aren't on the same level. And then you have this magical year yep. in 20, 2010, um, really Nash's last great year, maybe. Um, yeah. And they and they have this. It's one of my favorite all time teams ever that didn't win. Uh, and they have a five man starting lineup and a five man bench mob. And yep. they wipe the floor with the Spurs in the second round, avenging all the Spurs stuff. Goran Dragic has like the best game of his life in the in the in one of those games. And the um, Steve Nash with the shut eye, can't forget that. Just looking Steve, like a, a gladiator, finally slaying that dragon that he hasn't been able to get by his whole career. Then they get to the conference finals yep. against the Lakers, who are trying to repeat as champions. And they're just like those Suns were kind of just a misfit. Robin Lopez, Jared. Dudley, Channing Fry. It's just a kind of strange conglomeration of players that just had this magic sort of like Nash is really one of the only guys left from the true seven seconds or less teams, Nash and Amari. Right. Um, they have this magic and then remind people what happens in game five of the conference finals yeah. against the Lakers. Oh boy. And that's the last time the Suns are in the playoffs before this year. So uh, Jason Richardson hits this huge three off the backboard to finally tie the game up in game five. Obviously, game six would have been at home. Um, Kobe Bryant, Mr. Clutch, airballs a shot, which how often do you see Kobe just airball a clutch shot like that? And Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, whatever you want to call him, is in the right place at the right time and puts the ball back up for the game-winning layup. And that was just absolutely devastating. That was back in our True Hoop days, Zach, and I was on the Daily Dime live chat that night moderating it. And you just knew that, I just knew that was it. Um, I thought they could have won game six if you're up three to two and you have all the momentum, but it felt like to lose a game like that, it's you just didn't see them coming back in six and then going back to Staples and win, winning game seven. That was, that was the game to steal. Of course, in game six, Kobe uh, goes off. Suns just had no answers for him, just making tough shot after tough shot um, where you just have to shake his hand. And and that was it. And that was really the Nash era from there. Yeah, that game six, Kobe's on uh, on fire to such a degree that he hits a baseline jumper and pats Alvin Gentry yeah. on the ass on the way yeah. back up the floor, which is like an all-time. And Alvin Gentry just smiles at him. Like, I know. Like, what, what can I do? So the the the... Uh, meta putback. Uh, Jason Richardson had just banked in a three-pointer yeah. to tie that game with like three and a half seconds left. But yep. it's Jason Richardson who I'm sure you can close your eyes and see it. This yeah. is the box out. It's his guy. He doesn't box out, and it's a. It's actually like a really high degree of difficulty twisting, tipping, moon ball floater. Like that's a, off the glass. I think it's a hard shot. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a hard shot, and it's just. Man, it's just your typical Suns playoff luck where, again, you feel like you're there. I believe Suns were losing most of that game. Jason Richardson ties it up. You feel like, oh, my God, this game's going to overtime. Who knows what's going to happen there? This could be the series. And then just so deflating all in one moment. And then the defined, the thing that I will always remember from that game is the cameras catch Nash. He's taking his jersey off in the locker room and he's crying and yeah. and and hugging Alvin Gentry. And I always feel like those moments I, I, I are such an invasion of privacy like when Bosch falls yeah. over going back to the locker room after the 2011 finals crying. And yet I I feel bad for the players because it is an invasion of their privacy and yet it's just it you know 
it humanizes them and sort of picks away at this macho culture that you just got to be tough all the time. You got to just, you know, chin up all that. Like, that, like that's what it meant to Steve Nash and Alvin Gentry yeah. and everybody on that team. But I think, I think to your point, I think Steve probably sensed, I'm not going to get a better chance than this on this yeah. team again. Yeah, yeah, no question. I mean, especially when you look at what had happened the two years prior, you had Amari Stoudemire's pending free agency coming up, which, of course, I think the Suns probably made the right decision, um, certainly from a financial standpoint. Um, they knew his knees weren't going to hold up for a long a four or five year contract, but also would have been kind of nice to run it back in 2011. Who knows, especially with what ended up happening and with the Mavericks um coming away with that title not exactly a a super team type of situation there so i think it i think it was clear that um and i covered that team that was back when i wrote for valley of the suns that team was just so tight-knit such great chemistry such a uh some of its parts um some be- or the it, it yeah. was greater it was definitely one of those greater teams the where they fought where all the pieces fit in both units they have a spacing exactly. big they have a rolling big it was just a perfect it was just this alchemy that doesn't right. that happens. You know, it's it's you get alchemy when you put James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant. You don't even need alchemy, but that yeah, team had that special brew. Yeah, yeah, no question. And you had, you could go with Channing Frye as your floor spacing big man. Um, you could bring in your Lou Amundsen and your Leandro Barbosa off the bench and play a little bit grittier. Um, it was just a, a team that knew how to play together and was just really fun. So um, you felt like that was a team that certainly had a chance at a title. And once that was over, it was a couple years of just competing for the eighth seed, essentially. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? body strength marathon training all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in peloton's expert coaches and non-stop vibes hashtag vibes will push you to new levels of strength and endurance keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need and with a wide variety of options whether you prefer to run outdoors row or ride at home or strength train at the gym peloton has something for you get your head start on summer with peloton at onepeloton.com that's onepeloton.com i went you can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them. You name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream. Your team. Call 1 800 Direct TV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. So let's just take a little, let's just take a little run through recent Phoenix Suns post Nash history. Yep. Amar, Amari's injury is big, not only because they, it, the Amari thing is big, not only because they lose him to the Knicks, but like that's the bridge. 
to the next era. Like you've got the younger star. If he stays healthy, mm-hmm. well, we could just recalibrate around him, similar to what the Spurs were going to do with Kawhi and all that. And then the, the knees just, it gives out on Amari and he leaves. And, it, and, the, and then they're in the wilderness where we have the Lance Blanks era. Josh Childress, Michael Beasley, Hakeem Warwick. These names, I feel like you just almost threw up a little bit in your mouth just as oh, I yeah. said those names. And and um, the worst part, Zach, is I tried to convince myself on pretty much all of them. Like, oh, I could see Heydu Turklu working. That's a nice uh, secondary distributor with Nash. You know, I, I tried to talk myself into these. And, and then you look back on it. It's like, oh, no, that, those were actually pretty terrible ideas. Well, and to Lance Blanks' credit, I believe he also signed Goran Dragic away from Houston, which turned out to be a big deal. For him. I'm not sure if that was him yeah. or the subsequent. And he brought back PJ Tucker, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he'd been That's overseas. Right. Uh, he, they brought him back on a minimum deal at the time. I, I didn't think anything of it. And, you know, you fast forward to now and this guy's been a, a really, really productive role player for several years. So I, I'd say that was honestly the biggest positive of the Lance Blanks here, all of us uh, unearthing tra- P.J. Tucker. I know. And th- they trade Nash and that's the start over. And they yes. got pretty good return for Nash. Yeah, and after did. that, after that, you could honestly do a 30 for 30 on the Suns moves after that moment, just to review some of the things that happened. They tried to tank and by accident won 48 games. Yep. And somehow didn't make the playoffs with 48 wins. Didn't make the playoffs. Um, then they signed Tyson Chandler in an attempt to also lure LaMarcus Aldridge because they were friends or had a good relationship, whatever. Then they had three point guards at the mm-hmm. same time. Then they traded two of them at the same deadline. Dragic for two first-round picks to Miami. Isaiah Thomas to Boston for another first-round pick. Then they trade the Lakers pick, which was one of the golden gems of the league, for Mm -hmm. Brandon Knight. A pick that they eventually retrade for in the draft that they get Mikhail Bridges. In the meantime, Alex Len, Dragan Bender, Marquise Chris, um, you know, Josh Jackson. uh, None of these picks work out. Uh, uh, Devin Booker takes a nap one day and he's the pick by the way, that, um, that obviously restarts all of this. And, you know, one could argue and Ryan McDonough has argued that if we don't trade Isaiah Thomas, we don't get far enough. uh, We don't lose enough to get high enough to draft Devin Booker, who, by the way, if you redrafted that draft, he might go number one today over Carl Anthony Towns. If you, if you redrafted it right now, I'm not sure, but some people would take him number one. Devin Booker takes a nap one day. And I remember interviewing him about this. He wakes up to the news that Earl Watson is fired. And Eric Bledsoe has tweeted, get me out of here or whatever he tweets, claiming that he wants to be, later claiming that he was stuck in a hair salon or some such thing. Eventually, they salary dump TJ Warren. They salary dump Josh Jackson. um, They salary dumped Marcus Morris to sign uh, uh, Tyson Chandler going backward. Um, It's just... A sequence of events you could not possibly, um, you couldn't possibly replicate, and yet Booker, Aiton, Bridges, Johnson, one big trade for Chris Paul, and here we are. It's just, it's remarkable. Did you ever, when they're doing all of this machinations and none of it seems to be leading anywhere, were you ever, how did, were you ever disenchanted? Were you ever like, is this team going to figure it out? Like, what am I, what am I investing myself in? I mean, I think the process is kind of fun and, you know, it wasn't the Philly process per se, but I do think there's some of that aspect where 
if you lose enough, you get enough chances, you're going to eventually fall into it correctly. And I, I think the almost the most interesting one looking at now is the 2018 draft where Luka Doncic was on the board, absolutely should have been the number one overall pick. He's going to go down as the best player in that draft. But the Suns picked DeAndre Ayton, and he's been unbelievable this playoffs. They certainly wouldn't be in the finals without him. Uh, he's been great at both ends. He's having one of the most efficient shooting postseasons, really, we've ever seen. He's a, a great backline defender. He can even switch on to guards. He's, he's just really what you want in a modern defensive big. And I think it was that 2018 draft where things really – and that, that was the year going into it where the Suns were so bereft of talent outside of Devin Booker. But you had um, you, you had the number one overall pick once you win that lottery. The Suns could have had two mid-range picks, but they ended up um, – the Milwaukee one didn't hit, so they just got their Miami pick, which they ended up uh, combining with a, a future Miami pick to trade up back for the Lakers pick, like you said, which is just a crazy sequence of transactions. I, I remember I remember someone in the league because I had texted a bunch of people that morning being like, or maybe even that night, being like, wait a second, did they just trade for that same Lakers pick? And someone actually, a league source, a team source, on the whiteboard of his team's office drew me a flowchart of oh all the God. transactions that led to that. And t I still have the text and texted it to me. And I, it was like seeing, I don't even know. It was like seeing something out of the a movie where a scientist, where like a beautiful mind is drawing on the board. And it, and it worked and it ended up being Mikel Bridges is just the perfect player who, who would really fit on any of the 30 teams in the league. Uh, it's such a strong defensive player at the point of attack and then a good three-point shooter, great cutter and fantastic in transition. Just you get him and book on the wings, uh, you're going to score a bucket. So I think that was the turning point to me where it's like, okay, well now they have the pieces. You have something of a big three and, and you just need to build from there. So I think to me, I see some of the fun in the team building aspects. It certainly wasn't always fun watching it. I somehow convinced myself Dragon Bender was going to be a, very productive NBA player. And after a couple of years, you just saw that wasn't going to happen. So I think there's something kind of interesting about watching the, the young team grow and seeing those nights where Booker and Chris and Bender look like they could be a future playoff team. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, Devin Booker was a big reason for why I kept that hope, because if you have a perimeter scorer like him, and I thought year one, you know, he was he was really good for a rookie, especially a number 13 pick rookie. But year two was the year I'm like, wow, this guy can he just has that. Like, I think Chris Paul said he has that dog in him and you could see it back then if you're watching the Suns all the time. And obviously his, his skill development becoming more of a point guard. Uh, certainly this year, becoming a uh, better defensive player, competing much more in defense. All that has improved significantly. But I think seeing the hope in Devin Booker was something that certainly sustained a lot of Suns fans over the last five years. Yeah, he's he's the thing that started it yeah. all. Yeah. Um, and and you mentioned the dog in him. And I, you, you and I have talked about Devin Booker a lot. I've been a Devin Booker stockholder since his rookie year. I, I yep. kept defending him when people said he was a good good stats, bad team, empty calories guy. I was like, you, I don't know what you people are watching. He was only 10 of 26 last night. But there was that stretch. I want to say it was in the second quarter where he just got pissed off at Patrick yeah. Beverly. He was like, I'm freaking done with this guy. He's annoying as shit. I don't want to. I, I want to score on him. And he made a couple of jumpers. And then he, he talked a lot of trash. Then he missed like three or four in a row. And I didn't even care because just the mentality of like, 
This dude is not getting under my skin. In fact, I want to get him out of the playoffs. I want to send him home, and I'm going to make jumpers right in his freaking face. I just, I loved that, and you saw it, right? You could see it through the TV. He took the game, and he was like, I don't, Patrick Beverly, I want to humiliate you right now. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. And you sort of have two guys like that on the Suns. You know, Chris Paul and Devin Booker have that, that little bit of extra in them. And I, I think that's one of the things that when, when your two stars set the tone, I think things like this finals run can happen. Now, when we talked about the bubble a year ago, whenever it was, I think both you and I sensed like you know, there were a lot of people in the league who wanted to sort of say, well, this is a little bit of a fluke, right? The Suns are yeah. playing really hard. They're playing some teams who are sitting guys at the end. No and you question. and I were both like, you and I were both like, something's happening here. Like this is not yeah. This is not nothing. Like, this is a meaningful experience. And, like, I was one of the people – I didn't even think the Suns or Wizards should have been in the bubble because we're trying to be safe and limit teams. And they had, like, essentially 0% chance to make the playoffs. So they damn near almost did it. So I was wrong. Um, But fast forward to this season. I don't know if there was a game – just because you're watching every game. I don't know if there was a game, a moment, something when it clicked for you when you thought, whoa, we're we're pretty freaking good. We We might have something here. I think it might be that uh, a Pelicans game earlier in the season. Um, the Suns had recently gotten blown out in New Orleans, one, uh, one of their rare road losses during that stretch when they had that long road winning streak. And then they came back a couple weeks later and just had this monstrous fourth quarter that Chris Paul led uh, where they they ended up winning. I, I forget the specific details, but it was maybe like a 25-point turnaround in the fourth quarter where they just completely turned it on, shut down uh, the Pelicans at, at the defensive end, and then were scoring at will. They couldn't stop Chris Paul, and when they tried to double him or anything like that, he was just finding open shooters everywhere. I think Jay Crowder hit a bunch of threes. And that was, the, that was one of the days where it was really like, wow. But honestly, Zach, the whole season has been – kind of like that. They started off five and one, which included wins at Denver and Utah, which were that that first got my attention. Like, wow, they're they're winning at Denver and Utah on a back to back. Oh, my God, that's super impressive. Uh, Then Booker gets hurt. They had a little covid bout and uh, they fell down to 500. But honestly, since that point, when they fell to 500, they've pretty much been on a run. They had the best record on the road. They had the best record against teams over 500, which I think is really significant. And uh, when teams try to put the asterisk on there, that's, you know, I think one of the better defenses. They they were beating the good teams all season. So, um, yeah, to answer your question specifically, I think that New Orleans game was really a wow moment. But And then also they had um, a seven-game homestand where they won the first six and they pretty much played all the best teams in the East. They beat Milwaukee, Boston, um, they beat uh, Philly, and then that they the final game they blew a big lead to Brooklyn. But even in that first half, racking up the huge lead, you just saw every night. It was almost a surprise when when they weren't playing well. Yeah, I, I asked Jay Crowder this question over the phone the other day, and he said I don't remember when it was, but he was talking to one of the assistant coaches about exactly what you just brought up. They were looking at at their record against sub five hundred teams and over five hundred teams. Yeah. And the coach showed Jay the record and it was like awesome against the best teams yeah. and pretty mediocre against yeah, the worst teams. Yeah, it really teams. was. And Jay looked at the record and was like, whoa, that's really interesting. Like it shows me that when we really bring it and focus, we can beat anybody. And, yeah. and it just, it's been a magical season and you get minimum four more, maximum seven more. 
Um, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, if they win, I just might give you the whole damn podcast for a day if, if they win the whole thing. And you can just brag and talk trash and do whatever you want, Mike. But you're an invaluable part of the company. I always love seeing you, and and you were the first guy. It's like when I think of the Suns and who's happy. I think it's like Michael oh, yeah. Schwartz, Rex Rex Chapman. It's like that's where you are in my head. So yeah. I'm happy for you. I hope you enjoy it. One quick, more quick thing I want to say. I think there's something in the national media where Chris Paul almost gets too much attention just because he has done this throughout his career, where he goes to a new team and they improve. And there's no question he's taken their ceiling and lifted it to what's now a Finals uh, favorite, quite honestly. But like we were saying, this really was percolating in the bubble and even the last few years uh, where Booker and Aiton and Bridges and Cam Johnson growing together. And I think those guys, Booker in particular, really deserve a lot more credit, like where I didn't particularly love where Booker was in the All-NBA voting, um, especially like if if you equate his importance to Chris Paul's importance on the team. I think they're very much, I'd say... Chris Paul's the closer, but Booker's the engine who gets you there most of the way. So I think that um, especially now that the Suns are in the finals, I think the whole team really deserves um, more credit, whereas it's it's easy to just paint the big picture storylines. Yeah, it is interesting how Chris Paul becomes the protagonist of every story. And I have enjoyed the Twitter memes where things in the world happen that have nothing to do with the Suns or Chris yeah. Paul. And yeah, and people are tweeting like, well, Chris Paul probably imbued that guy with the leadership skills to like make the COVID vaccine or something. Right, like that. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it, I have enjoyed all those. And you're absolutely right. And everybody deserves credit. And the thing about the Suns is, you know, almost every team, even the Clippers who they just beat, even the Hawks, even the Bucks, have a guy on the floor at all times where you're like, well, I'm not so worried about him on offense or, oh, I can hunt him on defense. Right. The Suns, the Suns may have like half a guy like that. Like, I, I guess maybe you can go at campaign a little bit defensively right. when the Suns are on defense. But they are just rock solid. There are no weak spots anywhere at yeah. any time. And that just that goes a long way. Not having not having a target on either end of the floor goes a long way. And they, and you're absolutely right. It's a collective effort. And and here we are. The Phoenix Suns are in the NBA Finals. Enjoy it, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement. Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything, pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung Smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. All right, let's bring in someone who is both a clipperologist and sort of because of that, a Chris Paulologist to talk about both Chris Paul making the finals for the first time in his 16-year career and what's next for LA's other team, Mr. Kevin Arnovitz, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm good, man. I I, I, gotta, I, I can't lie. I was kind of rooting for a game seven 
in this series. I, I loved this series with the injuries and the grittiness and the griminess. And despite all of that, I kind of loved it. And I was rooting for a game seven where we'd have this collision between this franchise that has never been this far and this star that has been just pilloried as way off P and pandemic P trying to lift them to the finals without his co-star against a franchise that has not been to the finals in 28 years was a laughing stock for a little while led by a polarizing pint-sized irritant hall of fame point guard who was one game away from the finals and was either going to make the finals or blow a 3-1 lead and we didn't get it but I, I it was still a fun series wasn't it I love this series too um I love the chess I love the personalities I like the narratives that you just described I would have been very happy with seven um but last night was last night was fun. It was a really fun game. You know, Windhorse wrote about this this morning. I don't think I was trying to explain to a non-basketball fan last night. You know, they say, "Well, were the Suns favored?" I'm like, actually, I can't recall a team in my lifetime who had lesser expectations of doing anything this season of this magnitude than the Phoenix Suns. I mean, there was like a Rockets team that was a six seed like ages ago. I, this doesn't happen in this sport, Zach. Right? Like. Like football, baseball, you get that. We don't do that in the NBA, right? It's a chalk league. You kind of know who the six contenders are. And frankly, that's being a little generous often. And for the last decade, you know who the three or four contenders are. And that's how it plays. You get a little noise. Someone surprises. You know, maybe you get to a conference final. You're a Memphis Grizzlies. You're Portland Trailblazers. But by and large, this does not happen. This sport is not designed to take teams that are on the playoff bubble coming in, uh, make no major off-season acquisitions, right? I mean, I mean, rather mid-season acquisitions, Torrey Craig. But this doesn't happen in the NBA. Yeah, it, it, is, it is an improbable story. I think the Suns entered this year as clearly a good team. I think reasonable expectations would have been anywhere from four to seven in the West. They end up two. And now they're, now they're in the finals. And Chris Paul led them there with what was essentially a perfect basketball game last night, 41 points on, I think 16 of 23, 16 of 24 shooting seven of eight from three, which is like a joke, <laughs> eight assists. And in classic Chris Paul fashion, zero turnovers. And, and the, the turnovers thing is, is classic Chris Paul, because I think it's the under discussed part of the secret sauce of Chris Paul's sort of hyper terminator calculated maximizing the value of every possession. We all talk about it in the slow pace and the smarts and the methodical nature of it. But part of that is he does not turn the ball over at all for a player who controls it so much. You're going to get a shot on every possession of Chris Paul as your point guard. I, I thought it was just a magical, perfect performance. I thought when he untucked his jersey after the last three, the refs who have no sense of humor at all, if I had been a ref in that game, I would have teed him up as a callback to the untucked jersey incident in Minnesota last season when he got, I think it was Jordan Bell, entered the game. The only human being on earth, not just <laughs> the only player, the only human being who has ever played basketball who would know that's a rule I, and, and actually want have the gall to want to enforce. So know it's a rule, have the gall, know that the Timberwolves have already committed one delay of game violation, so a second one is going to give us a free throw. There's only one guy ever who would have done that. And it's Chris Paul, and he's in the finals. So I know you're not a legacy guy. 
I'm only kind of a legacy guy. I don't love these conversations. It's a team sport. Nobody wins by himself. But, you know, it's obviously important for Chris Ball to reach the stage. It was the emotions were clear last night. What did you feel watching it? What do you think it means for his career? If Maybe it doesn't mean anything to you. Maybe he's always been a winner. And to me, he's always been a winner. But it, it does mean something to get to the biggest stage. Yeah, you know, I'm not a legacy guy, but I'm an emotion guy. I'm a why do we come here and watch this game guy. And it was an achievement. And it was a guy who's put in an incredible amount of work. You know, we talk about, as you say, the method – um, yes, he is the world's most appealing school marm or, or, or unappealing school marm if, if, if you're not a Chris Ball fan. Um, it's important. And, and again, not because I'm with you, like not because I will think any more or less of him in his body of work over nearly two decades, but because like we get to watch him in a finals now. And, you know, it's so funny. I, w- I was watching that game and, and we've come like he's not we, we come to watch like Dame. Right. We've come to watch some of these performances where guys are unconscious or explosive or out of their mind. And what's so fascinating about Chris is he's none of those things. He's surgical. He bleeds you to death. Right. Like and it was such a beautiful portrait of everything he does. Like I I just I watched the 16 field goals this morning again. And it's just like the level of guile and intelligence just knowing the minute the guy is going to commit to stay home on the weak side and accelerating just the way he just, you know, Pelton and I have this piece up this morning about the tyranny of the pick and roll in basketball um, in the NBA basketball right now. And just, he is the foremost practitioner of this. Like just watching him outsmart nine other guys or four other guys and, and even his teammates, right? Like, like he, there's a reason guys have found him obnoxious over the years because he probably knows where they should be on the floor better than they do. Right. You know, it's the old McNulty. Uh, you know, I acted like the smartest guy in the room because he was the smartest guy in the room like that. That's, that's Chris Paul. I think, I think he and Kyle Lowry are both on the competition committee right now. And that's just, <laughs> I, there really should only be one of them. You can't have both those guys on the competition committee. We're never going to get rid of the, no, you're, you're, you're going to need a chess clock for those meetings. Right. Like, um, but it is, you know, also, I, I think it's an interesting chapter in his career, right? There was a knock on him that, yes, great floor general, but not a great leader. You know, that uh, the, contrary to what you would hear on broadcast that, you know, does he empower guys or does he direct them? He directs them and choreographs them very well. Does he inspire them? Maybe not. And it turns out, you know what? Contemporaries don't really want to be mentored. You know, what your age cohort finds officious and obnoxious, though, younger guys who grew up watching you and might find you insightful and inspiring. And like what induces an eye roll from one coach, you know, some other coach like Monty Williams might find that actually constructive or to the extent he might find it off-putting, he knows how to center it and focus it and channel it in a way that is really beneficial, you know? So I, I was really happy for him because again, he plays a brand of basketball that I think you and I find just appealing and infectious. And, you know, he's not this otherworldly athlete. Um, he does it through sheer kind of intellect and manipulation and again, surgery. And I love watching unconscious ball players. Like I want to see Dame do Dame, but I want to see Chris do Chris. And, and last night, so am I happy? What does it mean that he got in the finals? It means a Chris Paul type ball player is going, you know, a, a la Lowry. Um, I'm not going to put them in the same category, gets to sort of showcase that on the biggest stage. So that's what it means. 
Um, it really was just a perfect Chris Paul game. He flopped. He instigated. <laughs> he got shoved. He busted out the Smitty fake spin at one point and hit a floater out of it. He busted out the yo-yo dribble, which is his thing at one point. And the mid-range jumpers, just what you can close your eyes and see it. Pick left, snake right, rise yep. up, good night. It's just over and over and over again. When that shot's open, I mean, I can tell you the mid-range numbers for him are probably 48 to 52% every season. But when that shot's open, that's like a 60% shot for him. Yeah. I mean, it's that that that's a it's a great shot. And he just hit it over and over, whether it was Jokic or Gobert at times in the previous playoffs, Cousins, it's going to be Zubats. It's going to be all day long. And um, and and he's going to the finals. And and you know, I the reason I think it's cool is is how many times this playoffs alone did you think here we go again with the injuries and Chris Paul in the playoffs? I mean, he hurts his shoulder against the Lakers and he comes back, but he doesn't want to shoot threes. They start playing off. He's not the same guy. Okay, then he gets COVID. Gets freaking COVID after getting vaccinated. He has to sit out the first two games of, of this series that just concluded. Then. In game five, he and Patrick Beverly collide for, I don't know what it was. I, it was like a double, it was like in wrestling when two people are running from the ropes into the middle of the ring and conk heads and flop down. It was like a double flop collision supernova of floppiness. And he lands on his tailbone hard. And I guess he ended up hurting his wrist. But when he landed on his butt, We've already seen one tailbone injury this year, Steph Curry, the linger. I just thought, here we go again. And this was, we were going to get to the point where it's the second paragraph of Chris Paul's career obituary at that point because, you know, uh, uh, 2009, he was not 100% against the Nuggets. 2010, uh, he gets hurt. 2012, I think Blake Griffin's hurt against Memphis. They don't really have a chance. 2015, he pulls his hamstring after a series winning. Buzzer beater in game seven against the Spurs and has to miss part of the meltdown series against um, against uh, the Rockets of all teams. Uh, 2016, he and Blake both get hurt against Portland. And then this sort of thing peters out. 2018, he pulls his hamstring when they're up 3-2 against, I think it was a hamstring, against, against the Warriors. It was going to become maybe the first paragraph of his obituary. There were so many moments in this playoffs where it was just like, really? Again? But... Irony of ironies in the playoffs where everyone is injured on every team. Chris Paul's the one who Nick, a uh, Nick here, Nick there. He's back and he's healthy in the finals. Yeah, what's also interesting to note is I don't. How long ago was it that if you ranked what we would perceive to be the worst contracts in the NBA, Chris was in the top three of that list? I mean, how recently? Tillman Fertitta said. Tillman Fertitta said, according to ESPN's Tim McMahon, it might be the worst contract in the history of sports. Right. So, you know, because because here here's the implication there, right, is one, hey, this guy will get injured when you need him most. You're fair or not. Like, that's the implication. And the other is you can never really extract full value for Chris Paul. Yes, he can marshal a possession. And and yes, a, a good regular season point guard because he will organize everything. And that's what 82 games requires as organization. But it's not what the playoffs require. Right. And I mean, that's the other thing is, is this guy was buried. I mean, again, on the list of Albatross contracts, hey, no, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. And Phoenix took it, um, which that, that that's an interesting thing. I mean, building this roster this way is another story that I'm sure we'll all get into and, and we'll, we'll kind of do the anatomy of how this was built. 
I mean, that piece I wrote two years ago about, okay, they're firing their scouting staff and what the hell's going on there. Um, you know, and it turned out that James Jones had a particular vision. Um, we're going to populate the roster and supplement this core with a certain group of a collection of players. Um, and, and it worked. And again, I don't think anybody had it. As you said, four to seven was sort of the high end expectation for this team. Play in bubble uh, was the median. And again, nobody thought you could still extract maximum value out of that contract. You know, and you, you saw the Clippers up close, right? All those years where Paul and Blake and DJ and Redick and just a rotating cast of Jamal Crawford's and Big Baby Davis's and Chauncey Billups's and Matt Barnes's, Wesley Johnson's and Austin Rivers's <laughs> and blah, blah, blah around them just failed in the playoffs every year, failed to make the conference finals. And, and right as they hit their apex, an all-time dynasty hit their apex and then got Kevin Durant. And and you just it just never worked. And Chris Paul developed a reputation as a guy who couldn't win on the biggest stages of the playoffs. A guy who, who just didn't, maybe because of his size, maybe because of his position. It's hard to win when your point guard's your best player. Historically, that's actually true. And he's, I mean, I don't know how tall he actually is, but I've, I've stood next to him. I'm 5'11 and three quarters. I felt like I was about as tall as Chris Paul. And I do think that matters in the playoffs. I do think that makes... I mean, the fact that the Rockets in 2015 could put late career Pablo Prigioni and Jason Terry on Chris Paul and it's not a death sentence for your defense, I think that does speak to it's just a different species of player than LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant. It just is by virtue of size. It's a sport that, as Max Kellerman once told me, self-selects for height and Chris Paul is not tall. But look, the meltdown, the one that's really bad is 2014 in Oklahoma City in game right. five. When, when they blow a seven-point lead with 49 seconds left. And Chris Paul's just, just all over the choke job. He has the I'm too smart for my own good heave right. where he thinks he's going to get fouled and just get fouled. Why do you have to make it a shooting foul? You're ahead by four points. Just get fouled. No, it's a heave. It's a turnover. The ball goes off right. Whatever. And a bunch of stuff happens. Then he fouls Russell Westbrook on a three. Russell Westbrook! He fouls him on a three. Russ makes all three shots. Then he turns the ball over on the last possession of the game. Might have gotten fouled, actually. I watched it yesterday. I'm surprised that's not talked about more. Serge Ibaka or somebody, maybe Reggie Jackson. Ironically, I think it's Reggie Jackson. Might Maybe hits his wrist a little bit. But anyway, that meltdown. And then the next year, they blow the 3-1 lead against the Rockets. And they blow a 19-point lead in Game 6 of that series, up 3-2. That came to define Chris Paul in the minds of, of a lot of fans who like to talk about legacy and championships and the clutch gene and all of that. And 2014 was awful. And it was on him. That was also the Donald Sterling year where the whole franchise is up in upheaval. 2015, I've watched those Clippers games multiple times now, of Clippers-Rockets games over the years. That was not on him. Like, no. he, was the, he was the best player on those teams. He had 31-11, and 11, I think, in the Game 6 meltdown. Um, was not on Even now he's 2-7 of seven in the fourth quarter, but he had four free throws. He had nine points. He was the best player on the floor for the Clippers in that game. I just, all along thought that was all unfair. Chris Paul, by any measure, and I've got the numbers if people care to hear them, is one of the best late game crunch time players in modern basketball history. And to hold the fact that he took so long to get to the conference finals and the finals against him in the Western Conference, 
When in the East, it's like, who's getting to the conference finals every year in the East? It's just a random conglomeration of LeBron James, Glass Joe victims. Um, it was always unfair. And I have the numbers. We can go over them if you want. But the guy has been a killer and a winner his entire career. And I, I just feel happy that he's got a little vindication at this point. Yeah, I'm actually, it's funny. I'm always, I, I've always said that, you know, 2015 was a cosmic event. And 2014 was self-destruction. You know, people, I, I, Blake Griffin was third in the MVP that year. That team against OKC was really, really good. And it was self-destructive. And, you know, over time, you know, Chris beat himself up over that 2014 loss. You know, people on that staff, you know, would tell me years later that it, that it was as close as they saw to just Chris being emotionally broken um, because he blamed himself. And, you know, to me, that's, you know, we don't, when we talk about legacy, we don't talk about those contours, right? We don't, we don't, it's, it's always this binary thing. Like, what is the sum of the legacy? I like to look at kind of the, the component parts of the legacy. So on that narrative arc and, and 14 has always been such a flashpoint. Yeah. 15 was this crazy cosmic event. 16, I was in Portland. Like both those guys are down. It was just a mash unit, but 14 was sort of the apotheosis of, oh, if you didn't think Chris Paul was a winner, um, that was exhibit hey, hey. A. Right. And by the way, the Warriors aren't the Warriors yet. They, in fact, beat the Warriors in the first round of the playoffs right. that year. But you know what's waiting for them on the other end of that, of, of that series if they win? The freaking Spurs who won the championship and destroyed the Heat in the finals. I mean, that's life in the West. That's so you beat one right. juggernaut and around the corner comes another one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the fact that he obviously, you know, he did it in Staples Center. It, it was a nice guy. I thought he was really classy afterwards. Sort of. I mean, there, there's no affection anybody needs to reserve once they leave the Clippers for the Clippers. And yet, you know, he articulated it, um, at least publicly. Well, after you, the you game. go through, look, all of those guys, some of them I know, some of them I don't. Blake, Chris, DJ, JJ, Doc, all the assistant coaches. They went through a lot together. I mean, a lot. Multiple documentaries were made about the Donald Sterling <laughs> thing. Um, the playoff heartbreaks, the injuries, Blake Griffin punching the security guy and, and injuring himself at what was a pivotal time for the franchise. It, it's a lot. And I think by the end, by that 2017 series against Utah, which they lose in the first round, despite Chris Paul playing unbelievable, it's just broken. It's over. It's broken. They know it. They feel it. Sometimes you go through too much, too much losing, too many heartbreaks, and just the trust breaks down or guys get tired of seeing each other. But now time has passed. They all can look back on it and say, you know, and a lot of them have said, maybe we could have handled X, Y, and Z differently. Maybe, you know, we should have enjoyed each other a little bit more. And that's, and that's not, that's all of them. That's not anyone was blameless no. in how that team fell apart. That's everybody. Um, but you can look back at that team now and and look at it just not just as a what if failure, but it was a pretty damn good team and it was fun to watch. And it's one of the defining teams of the last 10 years in the NBA. They were very, very good for a very long time. And as you said, you know, it wasn't just the Sterling stuff and the burden of expectations in, in for that team in that market. I mean, I, those Memphis series... I've covered a ton of playoff series and, and granted, maybe I have a certain bias. I have, I don't know that I've covered finals that carry the emotion of those two series in 13 and 14. Um, it was just a team weighted down by not just the magnitude of personalities, but just one circumstance after another, the injuries, kind of the emotional peaks, 
um, everything about it, a, a franchise in flux, um, expectations for Blake, kind of, you know, the, the shadow of Chris's unfound, you know, whether you agree with it or not, the unfounded, in my opinion, in your opinion, re reputation, you know, is not being a winner, which is kind of insane. And, and you know, it's so funny. I mean, it, 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 and the, the funny thing about that is that's now been corroborated. It's not like he wasn't a winner and now he's a winner. Well, it, it's, I, I think he was always a winner who hadn't won, which, you know, maybe a certain tautology, but I, I, I think there are winners who've never won. Well, look, I mean, his teams routinely outperform expectations in crunch time, and they do that because they have Chris Paul. I'll just read you the stat real quickly. In the final five minutes of the fourth quarter in overtime, when the game is within five points, I had our stats research group look this up. Chris, for his career, is a 44% shooter, which is third all-time in his career among players who have taken at least 750 shots in that in that time and score constraint behind only LeBron, who's number one, and LaMarcus Aldridge is number two. And his teams are plus 503. That's number four among all players in that span. You limit it to three minutes of fourth quarter and overtime, three points. He's plus 348 in his career. That's second behind LeBron. And he's shooting 42%, which is trails only LeBron and DeRozan among 11 players to shoot at least 400 shots during that stretch uh, within three points, three minutes. In volume and efficiency, he's one of the greatest crunch time players ever, period, full stop. And one meltdown, really, one Chris Paul meltdown, obliterated in the minds of fans. All those other shots that are happening when you're not watching in a regular season or against the Grizzlies in the playoffs. Ask the Grizzlies how scared they are of Chris Paul in the playoffs. The Spurs buzzer beater in 2015. He won a game seven on one leg on a buzzer shot. That You don't get bigger shots than that unless it's in the finals. All of that was wiped away by a couple of high-profile meltdowns. And by the way, it all counts. It's all part of the resume. I'm not saying you have to look past that. That was a disaster. It's his version of LeBron in the 2011 finals against Dallas. That's always going to be there. But don't let it overshadow what this guy has done late in games and in big moments for his entire career. Yeah, and let's face it. I mean, part of it is a certain persona on the floor. You know, nobody likes the hall monitor. Um, you know, flopping, you know, in terms of flopping discourse, Zach, I mean, we forget it, what it was like about five or six years ago. I mean, the league instituted rules. It, it was, you know, the flopper was just the manifestation of everything you hated about NBA basketball that was ruining the game. And he was sort of... You know, he was, you know, kind of personified it, right? And so I think there were, there was a certain sense that people didn't like his persona. Um, he was bossy. Uh, he, yeah, flopper. Again, all of those things. And I think that, you know, it's funny. I, those things aren't relevant until you want to prove your case. So if you, if you had skepticism about the other stuff, then you'd, you'd, you'd pile on with, yeah, I just don't like the guy. I once called my daughter bossy, and Rachel Nichols told me, never call a little girl bossy. Say that she's exhibiting leadership skills. And Rachel was right. Boss so, now when you're, word. so now when your, your, your daughter acts similarly, you just say, thank, you know, good girl, like for demonstrating leadership skills? Try to, try to be polite while demonstrating leadership skills. Tone and, and, and body language can go a long way. Um, let's talk about the Clippers, uh, who head into a summer of uncertainty. 
to some degree anyway, with Kawhi Leonard having a player option for next year. Reggie Jackson's a free agent. Nick Batum's a free agent. And remarkably, they were two of the five most important players on the Clippers by the end of the series, by the end of the season, rather. Um, Look, I I think this team deserves a ton of credit. I I think they put the bubble behind them. And if you talk to everybody within that team at the beginning of the season, I asked as many people as I could, do you think that the bubble scarred you? Do you think it broke you? What do you think is is going to happen to you when you get punched in the face in the playoffs? And they all said to me, "I think we're good. I think I think we've made enough changes. We're we're good. Now, if it happens again, talk to me. But I, I think we're good." And they went down 2-0 against Dallas, and we all said, including me, "Here we go again. Here we go again. Here are the fake Paul George trades. Is Kawhi leaving? This and that." They fought back. They beat Utah twice in a row without Kawhi. They pushed Phoenix pretty much to the hilt until they ran out of gas without Kawhi. I think they've put that behind them, and Paul George deserves a ton of credit. He, he, he has a measure of redemption here, but that's all nice and, and fun and feels nice and all that. Kawhi Leonard could be a free agent this summer. They traded five first-round picks and a bunch of swaps, and Shea Gildersuggs entered Danilo Gallinari to pair him and Paul George. They still haven't made the finals. When you make a trade like that, if you don't win the title, it's a failure. That's just, that's how black and white it is. That's how much they gave up. The cool, the conference finals run, that's great. That's a first in Clippers history. You could check that off. We can never make fun of the Clippers again for failing to make the conference finals. When you make that, like the Nets are under the same pressure. When you trade all that stuff, you got to win or you did not achieve your goal. Even if you're a woe-be-gone franchise that's never made the finals. So given their cap situation, they have essentially no flexibility. They have to try to re-sign all those guys. Bobby Marks has the offseason guide up today. They have their draft pick this year. They can, in theory, trade their 2028 pick. But I, we might be underwater by then. I don't know. that, Like, literally underwater. But they do have their 2028 pick to trade as long as they have it unprotected. They have a million second-round picks. They have Kennard coming back on a deal that probably isn't great right now. What do you think is going to happen here? I mean, it's interesting to say. You know, are they desperate or are they reasonably well-positioned because they have two of arguably the league's 15 best players and probably one of the top five. Um, obviously, the backcourt needs addressing. I don't think they can actually bring Reggie back um, for a number that Reggie could probably get, which is going to be an interesting dilemma. By the way, kind of a thing I don't like about the CBA, a different conversation for a different day, but there, there are all these weird things in the CBA where you kind of get punished for hitting a second round or you get punished for you know finding a guy on the scrap heap, and, and it's structurally weird. Um, you know, They have Zubox, a young big. They have Morris, who's useful Beverly who's useful um they're gonna need some backcourt help they're gonna need shot creation from those positions um they're going to need to do more of what they did with Terrence Mann this year one of my big complaints of that Lob City era is the Clippers basically went the better part of a decade where the last guy you could say they developed was DeAndre Jordan right um Doc didn't value those draft picks when he was um you know, when he was his president, they let Reggie Bullock walk, right? A guy who became a very serviceable, very useful three and D guy um, who's tough. And, you know, I had someone when the Clippers were licking their wounds earlier this season, I had someone I really respect in the game say, yeah, I'll judge the Clippers franchise in some part on how they do with Terrence Mann this year. And his point was, is Mann was a guy that he recognized as a real pro, a rotation player. And one of the flaws of this organization has always been. They never found those guys on the margins, right? It was always, give me, you, you, you listed them 
a few minutes ago, right? It's give me Wesley Johnson. Give me Hedu Turgaloo. Give me what pro who's t- seven years past his prime. And they never kind of did the things where, hey, you're cap strapped. You know what you do? You develop guys. You find the two-way guy who becomes a real player. You know, you hit on your 26th pick or whatever it is. And like, that's what they're going to have to do. And this organization has failed at that project since DeAndre Jordan. Man is the first guy, really, you can say. Um, and, and they're going to have to find some more Terrence Manns. They're going to have to find players who allow you to compete in the West by extracting value from guys who are paid. You know, Reggie Jackson is an interesting reclamation project. You're probably going to need another one of those. Um, but that's what they're going to have to do because this is you, – you did trade away the farm to pair these two guys, and you're – fortunate to have them i don't think there are many teams who wouldn't like to go into next season with what the clippers have on their roster as a starting point but they're gonna have to work the margins a little better and then they started to this season and that's really good news yeah this this front office is equipped to do that um you know they did pick shea gilders alexander which turned into a huge trade ship for them the jerome robinson pick didn't work out the cabin galley pick didn't work out but that's life uh in in the draft man was a great pick in the second round Bobby Marks points out today, you know, they do have early bird rights on Reggie Jackson, which means they can offer him a starting salary of about ten point three million. Is that going to be enough? I mean, that I don't, I don't, I think it could be enough. I mean, I just don't see a lot of teams being irrationally exuberant about let's make him our starting point guard next year and pay him a whole boatload of money. I, I could be completely misreading the market. You know, there are other point guards out there like Lonzo, um, for instance, is one that, you know, Dennis Schroeder is one. So, like, there's a little bit of, of diminishing returns for the point guards because there's only a few teams with cap space. Obviously, you can sign a trade and all that. Bobby makes a great point about Batum. They have essentially no bird rights on him. They're very limited in what they can offer him, but he's still getting paid a lot of money by Charlotte, and he clearly found something there. I wonder if they can sort of convince him um, to come back. And I would expect them to trade for to, – to look to trade. I would – let me say, I would expect them to look to trade – for another point guard, and everyone wants to scream about Damian Lillard. They don't have the stuff to get Damian Lillard unless no. there's something I'm not seeing. I, I think both the LA teams are going to be sniffing around Kemba Walker. I think that's I think that's the market now. I don't know if you can get up to the money. I don't know if they have whatever Oklahoma City wants, but that's the level. That's the that kind of distressed whatever that I think they could target. And of course, you know Ibaka's got a player option given his injuries this year. I wouldn't be surprised if he takes it. Um, not sure. Wouldn't be surprised. And of course, there's Kawhi, and the rumors are already out. You know, Dallas is going to pursue Kawhi Leonard. Well, no shit. Like, if I kept space, I'd pursue Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> Miami's going to pursue Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, no kidding. You think Miami just woke up to like, oh, Kawhi? Kawhi could be a free agent. Whoa, we should maybe get on that. Uh, yeah, they're going to they're going to you know try to get a meeting with Kawhi Leonard. My operating assumption is that Kawhi Leonard is staying in Los Angeles, whether it's by opting in, as Bobby Mark speculates, and then later signing a new deal, or by opting out and signing a new deal. I don't know his Uncle Dennis. I don't know Kawhi. I have not talked to anybody in Kawhi's camp. I just, my operating assumption is he's going to be back in LA. I'm operating in the same assumption and just the mountains that were moved. Uh, both by him and 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 the team to to get him there and situate him there. I, I I'm with you. And and again, that's why, you know, 
the organization is under great pressure. As you said, they haven't made the finals. I, I don't look at this roster. I mean, this is what happens with teams with two guys of this magnitude, right? Like we sit here and talk, they're over the space, you know, they're over, they're over the cap. They're going to have to find, you know, guys at the minimum. I mean, that's just, that's roster construction. There's nothing really particular about the Clippers situation. That's what happens when you have two max guys typically. Um, and that's what they're going to have to do. And and fortunately, as we're seeing, there's a really good economy in, you know, restoring guys, you know, a Reggie Jackson, you know, the league has never been better at finding the Terrence Manns. And so, and this is where I, I kind of like it because it really becomes a meritocracy in many ways, right? Like your organization is very much, you know, the sum of, yeah, there are going to be certain markets who can attract certain guys of certain quality, but then, you know, five, essentially five through 12 is that project. And as I, I agree with you, this is a really crafty front office uh, that is well-equipped to do that kind of thing. You know, it's going to be an interesting summer, but I think they should feel pretty good about themselves if they, assuming Kawhi comes back, they're going to be right in the mix next year. And Ty Lue proved without a shadow Man. of a doubt the guy is a playoff yes. stud. When he was, you know, kind of out in the wilderness for a couple of years, uh, somebody I really, uh, an executive I really like, was just like, he is the best 740 coach in the league. Meaning, and the implication was I was doing that sort of coach's thing that I do and I talk to as many people as I can talk to and his point was like you know Ty isn't going to do the TED talk thing he's not going to speak in sort of the language of management um and I, and I don't want to impugn that I mean there's a lot to that kind of stuff I mean you know you can build really good cultures when you need to but his point was is get him to 740 he is the best game time coach in the league and I think a lot of people were surprised by that um because of stupid assumptions uh a former player whatever it is but tactically it's been interesting to watch like he is really he's an excellent game to game prep on the fly press a button coach he's so good zach he's so good now i would advise him to not lose the first two games of every playoff series but how much do you think the clip pay me clippers bring me on that's my advice to you bring me on don't go down to every series what's my annual salary to give to to, to provide advice such as this uh, but yeah, he he is a he's a stud, and he keeps the other team guessing too. Like he does one thing one game, you prep for it, then he doesn't do it as much the next game. He's got something else. He's he's a playoff chess master, and uh, uh, and so they've answered that question as well. So I think they should feel good about themselves having made the conference finals, assuming Kawhi comes back, assuming he's healthy. And again, we will have to see. But I I enjoyed the hell out of that series. I hope the Suns rest up, get healthy, get. Get Chris even healthier. Get Cam Johnson back. Watch the East Finals. Let's knock on wood. But by some miracle, Giannis gets healthy. I don't know how that would be. Trey Young get healthy. Let's try to have a finish to this season that is okay. Because I got to tell you, K.A., when Giannis went down the other night, it I had the same feeling I felt in the building when Klay Thompson hurt his knee in the 2019 Finals, which was, Let's just end it now. Let's just get. Let's just finish it now. We can't do it anymore. Let's just everyone go home, lay in bed for two months. Let's just finish it up now. It got to the point where I've been terrified. Like I was yelling at the TV last night with five minutes to go. I'm like Monty, take him out, because I'm so terrified. Like there is almost a reflex now. Like this is my. I have this icky feeling with four minutes left in any twelve point or, or greater lead, where it's just like maybe you want to take him out. Um, when I see a star on the floor now, I'm just – and by the way, I'm not prescribing that. It's probably – there are good reasons. Comebacks have become just kind of instant. But it's just terrifying. It's like what is going on? 
Well, let's knock on wood. Kevin Arnovitz, it's always good to see you. Read the pick and roll piece with Kevin Pelton. It's up today. I haven't read it yet, so I'm excited to go read it. Uh, I will be looking forward to your finals coverage. Kevin Arnovitz, everybody. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.